Boy, that spoke to my heart. <laughs> Thank you for that. Your Bible open, please, at John chapter 2. We have a very interesting passage of Scripture here for us. The Lord Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and uh, he finds this huge market going on in the house of the Lord, and it's all um, laid out here. Uh, people that sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers, and, and this sort of thing. And so uh, Jesus just simply made up uh, kind of a whip, and he cleansed the temple. And he got rid of all of these, uh, these people. Now, uh, these were essential services. There's no question about it. They weren't doing wickedly in uh, selling these things or changing money. But they were so greedy. The, the merchant men were so greedy that they, uh, they brought it right into the temple. And uh, that wasn't the right place for it. It was uh, maybe the right thing to do, but the wrong place to do it. Uh, I've read where the money changers uh, also were making huge, uh, inordinate amounts of profit on the changing of money. If you took your Canadian money and wanted to get it changed into U.S. money, you'd probably look on the Internet and see what the going rate is, and then you'd try a bank or someplace, and if it's all within, you know, a point or two or something like that, you can understand that. But if they started charging you 50%, 70%, I, you'd, you'd scream, you'd say, what? what's going on? It's highway robbery. Well, this is something of like what, as I read, that these <coughs> merchants were doing in the house of God. So uh, the Lord Jesus, he just simply, you know, actions speak louder than words sometimes. And so he uh, kicked over the tables and whipped around. I don't know if he actually hit anyone. I don't imagine he did, but he probably made the, the gesture of it, cracking the whip, and uh, drove them all out of the temple. And then we have this verse 17, the, the disciples remembered that it was written. So they, they were familiar with the, the scriptures in the book of Psalms. And uh, it said in there, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So we're going to be talking today on zeal. Now, uh, back on Sunday, January 6th, we preached on consecration and we gave ourselves to the Lord. But I, I hope everyone realizes that that is only the beginning. It's not the end. It's only the beginning. It's like when, when two people get married. It's the beginning of a life together. When we consecrate ourselves to God, it's the beginning of a wonderful life with God. And so over the next couple of Sundays, we preached about the need to be God's servants. Because the Bible says we are to go on unto perfection. And the perfection means to serve God. Now can I ask you please. You don't have to answer. What are you doing to serve God? Have you tried serving God? For the last you know, three Sundays now that you've been coming. And you maybe were involved with consecration. You heard how it requires uh, faithfulness uh, to serve God. It requires humility to serve God. You've heard that. You were here for the preaching. Have you been trying to serve God? What have you been doing to try and serve God? Have you offered yourself in God's service? Said, Is there anything I can do to help? I'm just asking. Uh, so I got thinking about this. And I could be wrong, but I think that the reason why some, and hopefully it's only a minority, 
of Christians around the world, and I'm not just saying here in this church, but I'm saying Christians in general around the world, I think the minority have the idea that God is their servant rather than them being God's servant. It's only a thought, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there are Christians out there somewhere who are not serving God because their thinking is, well, God is just there to serve me. I pray, he answers. I tell him what I want, he gives it to me. And um, I could be wrong, but that may be why some Christians in some places don't do anything to serve the Lord, possibly. Now, there's other reasons too, I'm sure. But um, have you ever thought about that? Who's serving who? You ever thought about yourself as a purchased possession of God? Because that's what the Bible teaches that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God, honor him, serve him in our body and our spirit, which are God's. They belong to God. And so God is not looking for robots. He's looking for loving, willing servants. We're saved. Great. We're his children. We're sons and daughters. But I thought we were kings and queens and we're going to get ticker tape parade in heaven. Yes, you will. But we're not in heaven yet. We're not there yet. We're here on earth, and our job is to be servants. When Jesus was on earth, he was a servant. When he went back to heaven, can you imagine the glorious reception he was given? The ticker tape parade. Y'all know what a ticker tape parade is? It's something that they do in the States. I guess it was made famous there, I think, but in the streets of New York anyhow, uh, maybe Chicago too, these great big buildings, people would be out there looking through the windows at the parade going by, and they'd be throwing these long, skinny little rolls of ticker tape. That was from back in the, the 20s when the stock market you know, was on these uh, printout little things. They were throwing them out the window and confetti. I don't know if anyone threw any desks or anything like that. I don't imagine so, but it was like big joy and they'd throw these things out. Ticker tape parade, all the confetti and everything like that. And so uh, it's just become synonymous with a great celebration of victory parade. And Jesus sure got one when he went back to heaven. But he didn't get one on earth. He was a servant on earth. That's where you and I are. We're still on earth. And so we are to be servants, his servants. Here's a thought for you. I know I'm rambling a bit. I hope you don't mind. But uh, the place of business where you go to work, are, are they your servants or are you their servant? Like that big company you work for, you went and applied and got a job there and you got a paycheck every week. Are you their servant or are they all your servant? Which is it? Well, how do I know the difference? Well, how do you behave? Do you show up for work on time? If your shift starts at 9, do you come at 20 after 9 and then have coffee with your friends till 10 and then start? Or you say, oh, no, no, I'd get fired. Oh, no, my, my shift starts at 9. I'm there 5 to 9, 10 to 9. Boy, you know, that's right. That's a good, healthy attitude. Well, how is your attitude in serving the Lord? Huh? He's even greater than that company you work for. Some Christians were very lazy when it comes to appointments with God, going to church. But boy, if we got a dentist appointment or if we got a doctor appointment, we're there. Boy, if it says 10, 10 o'clock, we're there at 10 too, even though we don't get in until 1030. Doesn't matter. We're there early. Bang. But when it comes to God's house and the things of God, how faithful are we? 
So these are just embarrassing questions that I'm just kind of throwing out there. Maybe it'll do some good, I hope. Today, we're going to cover another very important aspect of serving the Lord, and it's one that affects every one of us. It's this matter of zeal, because some Christians have no zeal whatsoever for the things of the Lord. They say, why is that? How'd that happen? Maybe they used to have zeal. They used to have some great zeal for God, but over the years, something happened. Now they got no zeal. How does that possibly happen? We're going to talk about zeal today. If you find yourself more on the sluggish side, or, or maybe you go through valleys of sluggishness where you just don't seem to have any zeal for God. Maybe you used to. Maybe there was a time, boy, when the doors of that church were open, you were here. When morning came, you were away with God in your prayer closet, opening the Bible and reading. You had great zeal, but maybe something happened and you got cooled off or burned out or something. We're going to talk about this subject today because you know what? Without zeal, sooner or later, you will quit on the Lord. You may physically still plop yourself down in a pew, but in your heart, in your mind, you've quit. That happens. That's sad, isn't it? So we're going to talk about that today, and I hope this will be a great blessing to every one of us. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, help us with this all-important subject. Lord, we pray that you'd please bless the scriptures and the thoughts to our hearts, and help us, Lord, to overcome the sluggishness and the things of the world and the flesh and even the devil in order to render proper service for you, Lord. We love you so much. So please be with us now and teach us your, your will and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever think about that? Why is it that uh, sometimes we struggle so much? Like I'll sort of play it out a little bit for you. Hey, uh, it's, uh, it's time, time for church. And someone in your family says, oh, do we have to go? Or maybe it's, you know, Sunday morning, you know, it's all done. You've gone for lunch or something. You're at home. You're relaxing. You're doing whatever you do. Say, oh, in an hour, we've got to get ready and go to church. Oh, do we have to go tonight? Can, can we vote on it? How about you go and I'll stay home? And this sort of thing is actually more common than what you'd think. I mean, it's, it's almost like the cold, the common cold or the sniffles. Everyone seems to get it. You know, you're not alone if you've ever felt this. And I'm not trying to shame anyone. I'm just trying to bring something out of the closet. That here is a legitimate problem that every Christian at some point is going to face. You've heard that joke about the, the, um, the fella. He said, he said to his mother, he said, I've had it with school. I'm not going anymore. Oh, why is that, sweetheart? She said lovingly. Oh, he said, the, the teachers don't like me. The students all hate me. Uh, I don't even like any of them. I quit. I'm not going anymore. And she says, well, sweetheart, you have to go. Oh, yeah, why? Why should I go? And she says, well, number one, it's important you know, for the others that you be there. You're supposed to be a Christian. It's a good testimony. It's important for you to be there. And number two, you're the principal. That's where you work. You have to go. <laughs> Did you know that once in a while, in the ministry, in the pastorate, I don't feel like going to church. Do you know that? It happens. Because I'm human too. We are all in this together. The thing is, why does that happen? You'd think that once we got saved, 
man, we're off to the races, so to speak, and boy, oh boy, wild horses couldn't hold us back, and just everything's gung-ho. It's not like that. Not always like that. Sometimes, I suppose, but it's not always like that. Sometimes we seem to lack zeal. And if you lack zeal for long enough, you will eventually quit on God. That's why men drop out of the ministry. They lose their zeal. And then they're just kind of putting in their attendance. And after a while, they say, I can't take this anymore. And they quit the ministry. That's why some Christians who come great guns and then their attendance comes here and they're hit and miss. And then finally they're gone. What happened? They lost their zeal. Don't you think the devil is trying to take away your zeal? If he can get you to lose your zeal, guess who's won? Huh? It ain't you and me. It's the devil. And so I think it's very important that we, uh, we examine this. Now, let's lay down a, a basic definition. The word zeal or zealous, it's closely related to the word jealous. There's similarity there, but there's a little bit of difference. Zeal has the basic idea of fervor, fervor, which if you think about it, jealous is a little bit fervor too. Only here's the difference. Zeal is understood to be a burning desire, listen, to pursue a worthy goal. A burning desire to pursue a worthy goal. Boy, a lot of young people get married because they got zeal. He sees her and, and he thinks, man, I've never seen a more beautiful girl and sweet and she can cook and she plays the piano. Man, I got to get her for my wife. And he is zealous and he'll do everything he can. He'll crawl if he has to. And then finally the day comes, he thinks that he's won her heart and he pulls out the ring and the flowers and she says, yes, she says, yes, yes, yes. And so they have this outrageously expensive wedding. Be careful of weddings these days, folks. Weddings will put you in the poorhouse. Uh, CBC television did an expose on weddings. And as soon as you say wedding, the price goes up. And that's with cakes and flowers and places where you hold them and all that stuff. The average... Canadian wedding, they said, is $32,000. The average Canadian wedding. That's the average one. And the truth is, they get married. The next day, they wake up in debt. And then they spend years sometimes paying off that debt. Now, if you happen to be independently wealthy and you've got bottomless pockets, ah, you know, don't listen to me. But for the rest of us normal people... I think that we ought to uh, get a budget and stick to it. My thought only, but take it for what it's worth. Zeal means a burning desire to pursue a worthy goal. Now, from our Bible passage here in John chapter 2, we can see that Jesus was zealous. He was full of zeal. He had a burning desire to pursue a worthy goal. But you may be wondering, well, pastor, is that really what God wants us to do? Is that God's will for my life? And you've asked a good question. Does God really want you to be zealous? Well, let's try and answer that from the Bible. Let's turn to the right, to the book of Titus, shall we? Let's go there to Titus. You'll find Titus hanging around there with Timothy. Somewhere in Thessalonians, you'll find Titus. There he is, right there after 2 Timothy. Pastor... Tim's little boy is named Titus. So if you can't find Titus in the Bible, if you go in the nursery, you might find him. 
So Titus chapter 2. And I, I'm going to get you to help me here. And I want you to read verse 14. Titus 2 verse 14. Read out loud with me right now. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Let me ask you, does God want us to be zealous? Yes or no? Yes, it's biblical. Well, there's a difference between theory and practice. Yes, I know God wants me to be zealous, but I don't have any zeal. That is often our case. It's sad, but it's too often true. Just as Jesus was zealous to do God's will, so also you and I as ordinary Christians are to be zealous to do God's will. And I'll tell you something, all of the great Christian men and women that have known God for thousands of years, all the great ones, all have had zeal. They've all had zeal. And you can check that out by reading Christian books of history and even reading the scriptures yourself and reading about their great lives. But how did they get zeal? You might be thinking, okay, you've convinced me. Uh, I can see biblically I need to be zealous. And I wish I was zealous, but eh, I got this question. How do you get it? How do you do it? Is there something you eat? Is there a button to push? Can I go someplace and knock on a door and have it open and I'm zealous? How did these guys get their zeal? How can I be zealous? Now, some people wonder if zeal and joy are the same thing. Don't make this mistake because they're not. They're different. They're two different things. They're both important. Zeal and joy are two different things, but I do believe they go together. Something like they say love and marriage goes together, right? Now, you know that... Uh, how many married folks? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. Raise your hand. There's a good number of married folks here today. Good. Um, you know sometimes, if you've, if you've been married any length of time, uh, when you, you've got love and you've got marriage. But once in a while, you can lose some love, but you're still married. Is that right or wrong? Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Now, we wish it didn't happen, but it does happen once in a while where he'll get persnickety and out of sorts, or she'll get, you know, her nose twisted in the air, or something happens, and, and the love, you know, the love aspect, uh-oh, what happened here, what happened? You know, they sleep on opposite sides of the bed now, what, what's going on here? And the love can be, you know, missing. The marriage remains, but the love can be missing. But you know, love can, can be brought back. And, and praise the Lord, most of the time it is. Particularly, I believe, in born-again Christian marriages because the presence of the Lord helps bring these, these two people back together. Now, uh, zeal and joy kind of go together. And believe it or not, you can have times where you lose your joy, but you still have your zeal. And I believe that's normal. But you can get your, you can get your joy back. That, that'll come back, so don't worry about that. Joy can come and go, zeal can stay. Listen, if we learn the secret of zeal. That's what I want to share with you today, is the secret of zeal. I'll be honest with you, folks. Some sermons are easy for me to preach, and some are not so easy, and this one is not so easy. Because it's, uh, it's like trying to, you know, grab hold of jello. <laughs> you know, 
trying to grab this, trying to uh, make it easy to understand this subject of zeal. What is it? Where does it come from? How do you get it? How do you keep it? How can you lose it? And I have really wrestled with trying to get the right words and concepts together. So I'm going to stick close to my notes here, I think, on, for the rest of this message here. But uh, the answer is uh, the, the secret of zeal. The, the answer comes in two parts. Comes in two parts. Now, allow me to illustrate the first part by using the game of soccer. How many here like soccer? Raise your hand. Not that many. All right, interesting. Uh, considering soccer is the most popular game in all the world. Do you know how many sports fans follow soccer? I didn't know this. I had to look it up. Four billion soccer fans out there all over the world. Four billion. That's over half the Earth's population follows soccer. Now, yeah, there's one amen. That's about all we need. <laughs> now, the thing is, <clears throat> have you ever watched the soccer fans? Have you ever seen pictures of soccer fans? Have you seen how they behave themselves? Have you seen how they dress themselves? Where's that picture? Put that picture up. These are soccer fans. Now, this is not considered abnormal. This is pretty much normal behavior for a lot of big soccer games. The fans come and they dress themselves and behave themselves in a manner that they would not if they were sitting in school. Or they would not if they were sitting in their, their cubicle at work. They wouldn't look like that. But because it's soccer. You know, uh, when my wife and I drive home uh, at night, um, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and it's raining, cats and dogs, raining, raining, raining. We drive past the soccer field. The lights are on. And we're talking sometimes 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. They're out there, dozens and dozens of them, getting drenched, kicking around a soccer ball. And there's the parents and family and friends off to one side with umbrellas. Yeah, go get them. Isn't that strange? Now, that's mild compared to what happens at some of these Soccer games, listen, better put that away. That's just, just, just too, too upsetting for some of us. These soccer fans, I read where they once brought a casket, a coffin, to a game with a dead body of a fan just so that he could be present for the game. <laughs> soccer fans handcuff themselves to the goalposts. Soccer fans run naked onto the playing field. Soccer fans get drunk. Soccer fans get tattooed. And soccer fans start riots. What gets into these people? Whatever it is, I hope it's not that catching. <laughs> well, back in 2013, the Smithsonian Institute published an article entitled, The Science of Being a Sports Fan. What does it mean to be addicted to your favorite team? Interesting title, very catchy. In the article, they went on to explore what happens in the minds and bodies of sports fans as they found the addictive power of, number one, watching the struggle between two opposing teams, and number two, the perceived victory of their favorite team. The fans felt that they were passionately a part of their team, and that is zeal a burning desire to pursue to them a worthy goal. 
That is zeal. Does that make any sense? The newer fans, they catch the zeal from the older fans. It isn't long before, you know, rubbing together with the older fans, they're pulling off their shirt and painting themselves in different colors and, you know, lighting off firecrackers under their armpits and doing things that you just would not do. But they're doing it because of zeal. And so the first part of the secret of zeal is this. Zeal is caught. It's not taught. It's caught. Some people have great zeal for soccer. Personally, I have none. But if God's will for all Christians was to play soccer, then I know God would give the grace for us all to have the zeal for that game. You see, you can't get zeal by reading a book. You can't get zeal by even listening to a sermon. Zeal must be caught, not taught. Now, it's something like fish. You can read all the books on fishing you want, but until you actually catch a fish, you're not going to get one, right? That's about it. So, once again, the first part of the secret of zeal is zeal must be caught, not taught. Okay? And all great Christians have zeal. But we still don't know where they they got it from. Where'd they get that from? You know, what some churches do is they recognize the sluggishness of Christendom within their church. And so they try to manufacture, they try and fix the problem with man-made zeal. And I think they try and pump their people up and whip their people up emotionally in these these, uh, church services where they're getting the bump and the grind and waving and jumping and dancing and yahoo and getting all happy and so on, and they're trying to manufacture it much the way that perhaps the sports people try to manufacture their zeal. Um, But when it comes to the men and women of God, we know they're zealous, but we still don't know where they got it from. It must be caught, not taught, understood. That's the first part. This leads us to the second part of the secret of zeal, where these great people got their zeal from, and I, the answer is, I think, I think they all got it from Jesus himself. I think that's the place where they got zeal from. You see, Jesus is full of zeal. Let's take our Bible and turn to the right to the book of Hebrews. Now, you're real close if you're still in Titus there. So go to Hebrews chapter 12. By the way, can I encourage every single person that comes to church to bring a real Bible? A real Bible. A real book. I know you got the Bible on a cell phone. I I do too. I got my cell phone in my office there. It waits for me and when church is over I go back and say, hey, how you doing? Uh, But that's where I leave it. Uh, You know, we hold up our Bible and say, this blessed old book. Well, you can't do that with a cell phone very well, can you? Can't can't hold up your cell phone, wave your cell phone. You know, hallelujah for the sword of the the Lord, you know, the word of God, here it is. Not quite the same, is it? So if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. How about that? If you promise to read it. But um, bring your Bible. Now we're in Hebrews chapter 12, and I'd like you to help me here. We're going to read verse 2. Now we're answering this question, where did Jesus get his zeal from? This is an important answer. I want you to follow this. Read out loud, please, verse 2 with me. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I believe that this is a great secret here. Let me ask you, going back to our illustration of the sports fans, the sports game, the soccer game, what happens after the big game's over? What usually happens? Starts with the letter P. Party. It's the big party. That's where the pubs uh, are open till the wee hours of the morning, right? And the fans, they all go in, they fill these places up, and they talk about the game and the different things that happen and how this guy hammered this guy. And did you remember that goal? Did you see that? Did you see it? It was right off the, 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 the toe of his boot. They talk way into the wee hours and they're putting back brewskis and cocktails and things like that. They have this big party. By the way, even if their team loses, they'll still have a little party anyhow. And uh, many sports fans, I think, have more zeal for what comes after the big game. And I was thinking, well, what if there were no parties? What if after the game was over, everyone just got in their car and went home and didn't talk about it? How much zeal do you think there'd be? Probably not as much, eh? Because it's this afterglow. This after the, the game is over, this, this party where they talk it through and celebrate and so on and things like that. And folks, I think that the world is very smart in their, in their own way. And that's why they pay for professional announcers at these games. And they'll get two of them going back and forth. And one will say, and, and he's making his way up the ice. And, and, and he shoots and he scores. We're paying maybe $100,000 for a loudmouth like that. That's a big expense. I mean, we could just do without them. Well, if you got rid of the announcer, the people wouldn't know when to scream and when to throw popcorn. You have to have the announcer. Well, what about the cheerleaders? All these indecently dressed young people coming up and kicking their legs high and rah, rah, shishkumba, and cheer, cheer. And they all come out and parade around back and forth. That's a needless expense. We pay a lot of money for that. We don't need that. Oh, yes, you do. Why? Because without them, you don't get as much, what? Zeal, right? They get the zeal going. Sometimes the mascot, you know what the mascot is, right? It's this adult dressed in this great, big, stuffy, fluffy thing. And, and he'll come out like, you know, the big thing and get the people whooped up. And, and uh, at games, uh, baseball games, anyhow, they take candy and prizes and they throw them up into the audience and they're screaming and going nuts. Then they have the big screen where they have uh, the camera zero in on a young couple and they're supposed to kiss. Huh? What are they doing? Oh, that has nothing to do with soccer. None of that has anything to do with the game. They're very clever. They're very smart. And that's why you won't mind forking over 50, 60 bucks for a ticket, for a seat. That's why you won't mind spending $5 for a 50-cent little bottle of water. That's why you won't mind spending 8 bucks for a, a hot dog. Oh, but you get mustard with it. Sure. That's, that's why they do this kind of thing, you see. It's because I, I think that it all helps whip up the zeal. But if there were no big parties and no big celebration after the game there'd be very little zeal, I think. Now remember, zeal is a burning desire to pursue a worthy goal. And Jesus had great zeal because of the joy that was set before him. In other words, the victory of his work. His 
death on the cross, his substitutionary death for you and for me, paying what we owe in hell, and then his death, burial, and his resurrection. And when he marched into heaven, I think there was a tremendous reception for the Lord Jesus. I think that the saints and the angels and the Father, everyone was excited. It was this joy that was set before him. And because of that, he was able to endure all of this misery on earth that he had to go through. We might call this the end game zeal. Where like Jesus, you and I need to keep our eyes on the victory when we leave this world, come after having completed God's will for our lives, and we're ushered into the presence of Jesus, and there's great victory and great joy because we've lived our lives for Jesus, and we've endured the hardness like he endured it, and we've suffered the slings and arrows like he has, and the indignities, and the accusations, and the downright misery that the world can throw at a believer trying to live his or her life for Jesus Christ, and we've endured that. And now we step into the presence of the King, and all heaven stands with an ovation and a cheer. Here we are, here we are. By the way, never forget that physical death for the Christian is just a matter of perspective. And although here on earth, you know, we're grieved in our heart that our loved one is going, and we shed tears and we say, There they go, there they go. Don't forget that up in heaven, they're getting excited and they're saying, here they come, here they come, here they come. So never forget that perspective that's important to keep in mind. And so we need to keep our eyes on a victory banquet celebration waiting in heaven. If we will live for the Lord, if you will pay the cost and, and be God's servant and be faithful and live a humble life. And be found uh, uh, at your post and, and, and doing what God would have you to do. Even at times when you don't feel like doing it. You're going to be there in your place on time. You're going to serve the Lord daily in your, your, your time with him in the prayer closet. On Sundays and Wednesdays in the house of the Lord. Oh, they'll never miss me. Yes, they will. You Just by being here, you're an encouragement to some other Christian here today. You shook someone's hand. You encouraged them. If you weren't here, maybe no one would have shake their hand. You have a ministry. Just being here is encouraging. Remember, zeal is a burning desire to pursue a worthy goal. And therefore, it will endure hard times. It really will. Because take, for example, a mother. A mother normally has zeal for her child. Even if at times that child breaks the mother's heart. She still has zeal. She's still able to get through those tough times of child raising because she's pursuing a worthy goal. Isn't that right? And she may at times lose her joy. She may lose her cool. But all through her life, she will never lose her zeal for her child. And if her little boy grows up and he's 40 and 50 years old, in her heart, he's still her little boy. Someone said that when your mother dies, all of a sudden you become nobody's child. All the great Christian men and women have had zeal for God's work, even if it means hard work. God wants you and I to be zealous. And we can be. How? By being with Jesus 
In Acts 4.13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John spent time with Jesus. That's what changed their life. If your Christian life is down in the dumps and the devil has mashed you down like that and you just feel flattered in the pancake, you know what you need to do? Slither away and spend time with Jesus. You'll get your zeal back and you'll get your joy as well too, by the way. You see, in order for a match to make fire, it needs to rub against something. It needs a little friction energy. And likewise, in order for you and I to catch fire and become zealous, you and I must rub against Jesus. Meaning that you and I need constant daily contact with Jesus Christ or we will lose our zeal. If you're here today and you've lost your zeal, I want to suggest to you 99 times out of 100, it's because you have lost your daily contact with Jesus Christ. You can get that back. But he's not going to force it on you. So keep your eyes on Jesus and the victory banquet in heaven for those who will serve him here on earth. This, I think, is probably the greatest source of zeal, which we all need if we're going to serve God. Zeal is a burning desire to pursue a worthy goal, and there is no more worthy goal than to try and help get people saved. That is the will of God for your life and my life. That's why Jesus told us numerous times to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That's why he was very careful when he said, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why Jesus said, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. If you're here and you're saved and you expect to be in heaven, you've got a job to, to do, and that's to help others get saved. You say, but I'm not a soul winner. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not this. I'm not that. No, maybe you're not, but you are what God made you. And you can let your light shine and you can pray for the lost and you can give out a gospel tract and you can encourage someone to come to church with you. There are many ways you can serve the Lord in this area. I think end game zeal is probably your best way to become zealous. But there's another way God has given us uh, to get zeal. And that's this. Zeal that comes from the pure delight of the job we do for God. Now this is zeal that comes from the simple love of the game. And there are sports people like that. They don't really care much for the party after. They just kind of love the game. And as a Christian, you may not be thinking much about eternal rewards and the big, big victory in, in heaven, but you can just think about serving the Lord now and the joy of serving the Lord, teaching a Sunday school class or driving a bus or, or, or being part of the fire brigade or, or a soul winner or some ministry in the church. And just the pure joy of doing that. And that may be where you're at. And that's fine. Now, while others maybe think of the goal and the victory of a job completed, maybe you just like the love of serving the Lord every day. Now listen, both produce zeal. Both ways will produce zeal. But if you lack zeal, it's not God's fault. And that's not just how, what you're stuck with. Listen, there's times when it happens to all of us. But we can get the zeal back. We can get our joy as well. Let's conclude the sermon today. Now this message, I hope, 
was exactly what somebody here needed to hear to help them overcome the problem of sluggishness in becoming a servant for the Lord. Now the bottom line is this. It's up to you. Come on the invitation and ask God to make you zealous. Admit to God what God already knows. Admit to Him that you're sluggish and ask Him to make you zealous. Now that's only going to come when you when you spend time with Jesus, of course. So you need to promise him you'll spend time with Jesus. James says, ye have not because ye ask not. I know that in the past you've asked God for many things. Just ask him for this. Ask him for zeal. He'll give it to you. He'll help you with it. Now we're almost done, but there's one last thing that zeal will do for you as a Christian. Zeal will move you to share the gospel message with others no matter what. This week I was listening to a tragic story that actually happened about 43 years ago, July 31st, 1976. A man and his wife were staying in a hotel in Big Thompson Canyon in Colorado. If you've ever seen pictures of it, it is a great big canyon. And at the bottom, this Thompson Canyon, they call it. And on that day, it began to rain. It began to rain like it had never rained before. And meteorologists since have tried to figure out what caused that much rain. But it rained as if it was the days of Noah. It rained. Staying in that hotel was this man. Now, this man was an engineer. And as the man looked out the window, and he started realizing how much it was raining. And he started looking around at the physical terrain and how they were down in this kind of a valley. He started realizing this is not good. And he understood the physics, the dynamics, that the water was going to exceed any limitations that the hotel could hold back. And he said to his wife, honey, I, I have to warn people. I'm going to warn the, the hotel owner and his family. I'm going to warn as many guests as I can that uh, we got to get out of here. We have to leave the hotel and we got to get up to higher ground. He said, I'm going to go and warn as many people as I can. If I'm not back in 30 minutes, I need you to go up the side of this embankment, this mountain here, and I need you to get up to higher ground. Will you do that? And she said she would. So off he went, and he warned as many people as he could. The 30 minutes came, and he wasn't back. And so, in keeping with the plan, she left quickly and went up the side of the mountain, and and there she sat. She never did see her husband again. But what she did see was a 19-foot wall of water that came washing down that canyon. And she saw cars float by. She saw a Greyhound bus float by. And she saw the water crumble that hotel. You can look it up when you go home. The Big Thompson Canyon in Colorado in 1976. Now, listen, those people that were in the hotel, if no one ever warned them of the disaster, you could understand why they wouldn't do anything. But the truth is, someone did. Someone went at the risk of his own life, and that's what it cost him. And he warned the hotel owner and his family, he warned other guests in the hotel that they need to flee, they need to get out of there. He warned them. 
but for one reason or another, they, they didn't do anything. Maybe they thought, oh, it's not that bad. It's raining hard, but it's not that bad. Maybe some of them thought, well, if, if the flood waters do rise up, the hotel is built strong and we're safer in the hotel. But regardless what they were thinking, regardless, they all perished. 144 people died and perished that day because of the flood waters. You may be here today and may have heard the gospel message before. You may already know that there's a hell and there's a heaven. And that man is born lost and on his way to hell. He's a sinner by birth and by choice. And his sin is taking him to hell. You may have already heard that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Who did what no one can do. He died on the cross paying what we owe in hell. You may have heard this. And that how he died and rose again the third day. He's alive. Hallelujah. But a, a way has been made. God made one way for you and I to escape hell. And to get into heaven. And that's by repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, I need you as my Savior. Would you forgive my sins and come into my heart right now, not tomorrow, right now, and save my soul and be my Savior? Jesus, would you do that? And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus wants to do. And if you're here today and you've never been born again, you need to flee from the wrath to come. You absolutely need to do that. Because if you are not saved and if you end up in hell, it's not going to be because you weren't warned. Let's stand to our feet for a moment of prayer.